Hello, welcome, and would you look at this mess? I'm your host, Kate, and the purpose of this podcast is to trace, explore, and celebrate the unconventionality that lives within all of us. Hi. Hey. Welcome back. Come on in. I assume you have seen the title and probably the description for this episode. I also assume that you may have some things running through your mind, not unlike, oh, what are you going to have to say about this? (laughs) So I'm going to invite you to take some deep breaths, to try your best, to open your mind. You know me, I don't shy away from controversial Um, unusual topics, and this is no different. I do have an unconventional perspective on this. And so again, I invite you to take some deep breaths and just hear me out. Hear what I have to say and try to have an open mind about it. This is, without a doubt, the most uncomfortable recording I've done on this podcast so far. Um, of all of the controversial topics that I've done up till now, this is certainly the most controversial. Um, and maybe it will be the most controversial it'll ever cover. I, I expect that I will come back to this at some point too. But um, yeah, so I am definitely a little uncomfortable. And there may be a little choppiness because I sometimes need to take a breather and recollect my thoughts because the nerves of bringing up this topic, well, it can get the better of me. So I just want to start first and foremost by saying that I'm not going to share like gory uh, abuse level details in this episode. So I don't think you need to be afraid of me necessarily talking about stuff like that. That may come up just a little bit. I will give you all the warning in advance if I'm going to, but I'm really going to try to avoid discussing any of the super deep nitty gritty details Um, and stick to more of the, you know, (laughs) I don't even know how to explain it, scientific stuff. Um, I'm also going to say that I actually have a fairly deep history with this topic because when I was in my undergrad, I was studying both an anthropology and a psychology degree concurrently. And in my final year of undergrad, or maybe it was my second second last year, anyway, 2012, I took a... Um, human sexuality course, the psychology of human sexuality. And there was a a module on pedophilia, or at least like a section, right, on sort of sexual deviancy and that sort of thing. So pedophilia was part of the material that we learned about. And I ultimately chose to write a term paper centered on not just pedophilia, but the treatments that are currently accessible to pedophiles to Um, help them overcome this disorder. And essentially, you know, ultimately with any of the discussions that we have, 
the thing that holds we have to hold in the back of our minds is that we are trying to protect children. That's it, right? But we also want people to be able to live a dignified life, regardless of who they are. This is something that I hold very deeply in my heart. Um, I don't believe that most people are inherently bad. Um, anyway, we'll get a little bit more into that after. So one of the thir- first things that I wanted to do is to read part of my conclusion from the paper that I wrote. I went diving into an old hard drive, or not even an old hard drive, but into old materials that I have kept for all this time, because sometimes I return to them, and this is one of those moments. And um, so, okay, so the paper was ca- is called Pedophilia and Castration, Examining the F- Effectiveness of Castration on Pedophilic Behaviors. And it's actually that, you know, <laughs> again, I wrote this many, many years ago, but I reread it and I was like, this is actually a pretty darn good paper. I mean, I was like, no wonder I got a very good grade on this because it is really well written and um, well argued. So if you would like to read this paper, I'm more than happy to send it to you. I'm not offended if you don't want to, but if you're interested in what the research said at the time um, and sort of what my argument was, I still agree with virtually everything that I argued in this paper, and I still think that a lot of it is very true, even though it was nearly 10 years ago that I wrote this. Okay, so this is part of the conclusion that I wrote. With regards to possible future social and political changes, my honest opinion is, first and foremost, better public awareness of pedophilia as a disorder. After doing such extensive research, I have realized that my understanding of this of the issue was severely inaccurate. Now, learning what I have about this disorder, I am extremely aware of the constant circulation of misinformation and hatred regarding pedophiles in society. The only way to change how society feels about treating these individuals is by changing how they see and understand this, the disorder. Perhaps I am being too optimistic, but I do feel that a shift in the way we approach this problem socially and politically may have an effect on our ability to conduct better research to find better ways of dealing with it. Perhaps if we demonize it less and accept these people for who they are, they may be more willing to self-identify and seek help before it is too late, or improve our ability to do more appropriate research. At the very least, we need to continue exploring the potential solutions we already have been, but hopefully with precision, specificity, and caution. One thing that I do want to be clear on is that when I say the only way to change how society feels about treating these individuals, I mean specifically in their treatment. So at the time, and I think it's still true now, the primary dominant treatment for pedophilia is uh, chemical castration. It used to be physical castration, but um, I haven't necessarily updated my own understanding of current policy, but um, certainly at that time, chemical castration was the dominant uh, treatment. So that's what I'm referring to, not necessarily how society treats pedophiles in how we perceive them as humans, but but specifically treatment programs. And I'm going to talk 
probably pretty extensively about this idea of self-identification and seeking help before it's too late. Um, I'm going to talk about that probably quite a bit, but I, okay, so (laughs) that's my background. And I've thought about and sort of revisited some research on this stuff over the years. It's continuously been something that I am interested in. I have very strongly considered going to school. When I was doing the psychology degree, that was my initial one uh, that I was focusing on. And I wanted to become a psychologist or a counselor or something, uh, which I ended up ultimately going a different direction. But I've considered over the years going to school to become that counselor and working specifically with people, men more so than anything, because men account for like 99.9% of pedophiles um, who identify as pedophiles, uh, offering them counseling. And again, I'm going to explain a little bit more about that as we go. It's, I'm going to probably, this will be a quite a deep dive, <laughs> but yeah. So this is just my way of saying, you know, this is not something that I've just stumbled upon all of a sudden. It has, it's something that I've deeply considered for a long, long time. And um, so when I recorded my episode about like white folks and anti-racism and all of this stuff, at the time, I'd thought about this analogy of it has a certain level of ick factor in advocating for white folks to have a supportive space to explore um, our our burgeoning self-identity as being white, as being colonizers, settlers, whatnot. And it felt sort of parallel to a couple of things, one of them being like Alcoholics Anonymous, where it's an undesirable thing. And by providing a support network and a community around mitigating that behavior, uh, people often find that it is possible for them to um, you know, change their, their, their life course by having that community support and not engaging in that behavior by being able to rely on the people in that community to help them through those tough moments. So that's kind of the first thing that came to mind. And the other thing that came to mind was that as more research emerges about pedophilia and how to treat it, one of the most interesting things is that what they find is that when they provide counseling for people who self-identify as pedophiles or having pedophilic urges, um, it really does have an impact. At least we think so far it does. It has it seems to have an impact on their uh, ability to control their urges and impulses, which translates to protecting children. It protects children from people who otherwise feel isolated and and out of control and like they have no other options but to give in to the urges. So that was like a couple weeks ago, I was thinking about this and I was talking to my good friend about this and I was explaining this stuff to her and she was quite shocked to under just to, for me to explain some of these things to her about you know from the research that I had done previously and continuously shifting an understanding of what pedophilia looks like what it actually is and how it comes about and so then I started thinking because I mean I've thought for years oh email I've thought for years about talking about this stuff and I have brought it up in a couple of social contexts trepidatiously and I get mixed feelings from people. And I understand that completely. I completely understand why we have this visceral reaction against it. Um, But I'm like, 
we need to talk about this. So <laughs> that was, again, a couple weeks ago, whatever. This past week, I was listening to a CBC podcast series, and they kept advertising for this other series. And then when that one ended, uh, it kind of came up on my, like, search, like in the search thing, it was like, oh, you could also listen to this. So it came up with this other series. And so I was like, it's called Hunting Warhead. I really recommend that you listen to it if this is at all an interest to you, because I think from my perspective, they did a pretty great job of describing the the uh, situation and explaining it and pulling it apart and analyzing it from different perspectives. I thought it was great. Um, Again, bearing in mind, you have to have an open mind a little bit about this. They do uh, go through some pretty explicit details, so like prepare yourself for that. Um, but again, highly recommend it. It's worth it to listen to what they have to say. So I listened to this podcast, and they brought up stuff that I've brought up where people have railed against my view on this stuff. And I'm like, huh, okay. So this is a pretty mainstream media outlet um, the podcasting, I don't know how much of a reach of an audience they get on it, but obviously CBC as a, as a organization is, is hugely mainstream. So I don't know what the listening body is of this particular podcast, but, but the idea being that a, a mainstream media outlet picked up this story and I feel represented the, the community quite positively overall, um, they focus on a particular guy, a Canadian guy who, you know, gets himself into trouble as a pedophile, blah, blah, blah. And they do what I feel was a pretty good job of separating out the fact that this particular person was not just a pedophile, but also a sociopath. And so you can't judge all, all pedophiles on this one person. Anyway, I'm going to play for you what the journalist had to say on that podcast, because I realized it fairly closely resembles what I had to say in 2012 when I did research into this and began to learn um, about pedophilia and what it looks like. Okay, let's go. In the course of this series, I've spoken with pedophiles who understand that acting on their desires is wrong, who live in a state of perpetual self-loathing, who I have every reason to believe will probably never abuse a child. As tempting as it can be to think of pedophiles as monsters, it's not accurate. They're people with an affliction we don't yet fully understand. Nor do we really know how to help them. More than that, maybe we don't really care to help them. And so I wonder if maybe we have a bit of reckoning to do if we truly do want to protect children. That said, it's also true that there are people who do monstrous things. So... <clears throat> That is, excuse me, the journalist. <clears throat> His, oh my goodness, my voice is uh, failing me. <laughs> His name is Damon Fairless. And again, I, I think he did a pretty awesome job in covering this story. And, uh, d you know, in that description of, yes, there are pedophiles who do monstrous things, but pedophiles in and of, in and of themselves are not monsters. So that's kind of what I want to talk about. And there's all kinds of layers <laughs> that that we have to look at here. So um, first and foremost, when we try to understand pedophilia, this is categorized under uh, sexual deviancy as a paraphilia. Paraphilias are defined as... 
falling within three criteria. There is, uh, I'm actually, so I'm reading this out of a book titled Human Sexuality. Uh, it's from the textbook that I used for my course in 2012. So I will say that it's possible that these criterion have changed or that pedophilia itself may have been recategorized since then. I don't think so. But anyway, so at the time, this is uh, as of 2010, I think, this is what the criteria are. The behavior is engaged in for the purpose of sexual arousal or gratification the behavior tends to be compulsive and a clear majority of people in a given cultural setting would consider the behavior to be strange, deviant, or abnormal. And so in order to be considered a paraphilia, it has to be ticking all three of those boxes. And that seems, I mean, I don't know, it seems reasonably obvious to me that, you know, that makes sense. That doesn't seem completely far-fetched to have those sort of criteria. But what I think is interesting, I get the sense that pedophilia is something in and of itself, that it doesn't really belong into the same categories as other paraphilias. Um, I don't know that's true or not, but it's just a feeling that I have, that it might be something more. Um, There is emerging research that suggests and has suggested for some time that pedophilia is biological, that just as people are born as homosexuals or asexuals, that pedophilia is another uh, type of sexuality on the human spectrum, which may be upsetting and troubling to understand and to wrap our heads around, because what we're saying is that this is natural. And, sorry, Nina, really? Um, Yeah, so this can be difficult because we really, really, really want to demonize people who experience pedophilia. And um, so it's, it's difficult. It's sort of like a cognitive dissonance where if we can tell ourselves that they're not really human, that that means we can justify their mistreatment um, socially and culturally and also medically, and that we don't have to care about what happens to them, that, that we can wish death upon them, all of those things. Um, and again, I get it. You know, like I understand that there's a desire to to think like that. Um, but so this is, this is kind of the crux of my problem with the way that we view pedophilia currently. It is so demonized that we don't know if someone is a pedophile until they have committed harm. It is extremely rare to have someone self-identify as a pedophile before something happens. And so I want to say, you know, again, they, they talk about this in the that pro- pro- podcast as well, but I also brought it up in my paper that not everyone who is uh, a sex offender is a pedophile. Not all pedophiles are sex offenders, etc. Um, and not all child molesters are pedophiles either. Uh, there's a distinction where pedophiles specifically are attracted to children versus some child molesters are what's referred to as opportunistic. So they will uh, abuse anyone that they can get their hands on, essentially, rather than specifically being about children. Uh, Pedophiles can identify as such even if they have some attraction to adults as well as children. Pedophiles can um, be... uh, 
uh, exclusively children. There are different age ranges that certain pedophiles fall into. So there's definitely a spectrum here and there's definitely nuance here. So, but the thing is, the way that things work now, because they're so demonized, because they're so ostracized socially, um, like I said, we don't know someone is a pedophile until they are caught for having committed some kind of crime and abused a child. Um, so it's, it's something to, for me that, that I had to make a, a mindset shift at some stage to realize that what we are doing is reactive and not enough. If our end goal is to protect children, we need to create an environment where people can be identified as pedophiles prior to something happening where they abuse a child or a child is subjected to abuse for their pleasure. So, um, cause, and this is, this is twofold. There are two reasons why I feel this way. First and foremost, obviously, because again, if we're going to try to protect children, it would be better if the environment were such that people could come out to their family, to their doctors, to their close friends, whomever, to get support for what it is they're experiencing before they feel cornered and like they have no choice but to act on it. Um, and, and so, okay, sorry, interestingly, um, there is some evidence to suggest that pedophilia may belong more, uh, may, it may fit better into the category on the spectrum of obsessive compulsive disorder uh, versus paraphilia. Maybe it's a blend of the both of them because what they do find is that it's often an obsessive thing. It's a compulsive thing. They, it's, it's like alcoholism where they realize that what they're doing is wrong and bad. They shouldn't be doing it, but they can't stop themselves and they feel guilty and they go through this cycle of this guilt and then and then eventually the the obsessive thoughts come in and they do it again and um so so having again having being in an environment where they feel like they could get help before they get to that stage um, because interestingly pedophiles tend to start acting on their impulses or they start to identify as pedophiles um around puberty which is around the same age that other you know, kids start to explore their own sexuality. So it's an, it's an emerging sexuality that does happen around the same time as other types of sexualities. Um, and, uh, and then they do, they will start at that age, even starting to, you know, do whatever it is that they have to do, whether that's physically abusing children or going onto, you know, websites and things to consume, um, child abuse materials and stuff. So there's that. On the other side, as this journalist notes on this CBC podcast, we don't really understand pedophilia all that well because there is a lack of research because people are unwilling and unable to confront the reality on a on a regular like on a large scale, um, even within the scientific community and within the psychology community, 
people find it difficult to deal with this. And so you have both a lack of research and you have a lack of uh, psychologists who are trained and understanding and empathetic towards this predilection, this experience for some people. And so there's this two-pronged, like, (laughs) negative impact on communities um, because we don't understand the the problem and we don't have good tools for treating it. Again, I wrote this whole paper about why chemical castration is ineffective um, and really what it comes down to is that we're desperate to try to do something to try to control the behavior and so we just have leaned on that because we we, we want that to be it but it is not effective in treating the problem. And again, it's only effective for treating someone who has already abused someone else. So you're not actively, proactively protecting anybody by forcing, which, by the way, I think in the United States anyway, up at the time of writing that paper, treatment of chemical castration was forcibly put upon anyone who was convicted of that kind of a crime. Uh, which was also, it raises some ethical concerns too, uh, because there are some severe negative health impacts for being chemically castrated. Anyway, you can read the paper. (laughs) I'll send it to you if you want to read it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so, so again, it's, it's reactive. It's not proactive. And so my view on this ever since writing that paper has always been, we need to start figuring out how to be proactive in dealing with and confronting this reality. It's a reality. Something like 2 to 4% of the population uh, could be classified as being pedophiles, which, depending on the country you're in, it's a couple million people. So that constitutes a lot of people who could be, you know, abusing and who are abusing children. So um, what I was saying is we don't really understand pedophilia that well. And the vast majority of the research that we have on this particular paraphilia is from people who have gone to prison for convictions of crimes of that nature. And, um, you know, so what was I going to (laughs) say? Deep breaths. Sorry. It's a lot. <laughs> and I've been holding on to this stuff for so long. I'm like verbal diarrhea trying to get it out. Um, so when we do research and when research is published and then taken to be a generalization of pedophiles, the one thing that really needs to be noted is that these are people who are prisoners, who have been caught for their their actions and convicted and are sentenced to whatever and serving their sentences in prison for be, for these these behaviors. So it was interesting because um, even on this CBC uh, series, they're talking about how there is a biological component to pedophilia, and I believe that there is. I think this is something that is really emerging now. Like we're really starting to get a grasp because even in the textbook that I was referring to in 2010, it it sort of asserts that the majority of pedophiles end up uh, becoming pedophiles because of previous childhood trauma. 
And I don't think that that's necessarily untrue, but I do think that there is another subset of people who experience this paraphilia who are born this way. Who And even if you're not, even if it is something where it is trauma-related, it's still part of your biology, in my opinion. That's still part of who you are. Um, and so when we, when we look to, you know, punishment-based treatments, basically, it's the same as virtually everything else. Punishing people into behavioral change is almost never effective. Almost never. And so, um, you know, I just like, to me, it seems obvious that we can't punish people into suppressing their impulses, especially something like that, right? Um, so we have to look more at the proactive side of things. But we will never be able to fully understand and get a grasp on what pedophilia is, how, it, how it, we arrive at pedophilia, without having a better sample size, a better sample representation. Because if all the people you ever study are prisoners, that is a very biased sample. So the interesting thing, uh, sorry, I was going to say, and then I got sidetracked, the CBC series mentions that there are these biological factors that are associated with pedophilia now, you know, things like lower IQ levels and um, comor comorbidity of other um, mental illnesses or of mental illnesses, right? Um, and so I was thinking about this and I did a little bit of sleuthing. I didn't do a ton of digging, but I did a, a, a minor sleuth into the, the data and the conversations around um, IQ levels and mental illnesses among the general prison population. And uh, it seems to me that my assumption is correct that there is a propensity to see people with lower IQs and more mental illness in prisons. So then I ask the question, um, is it that pedophilia is associated with these things or is it that people who suffer with these things or, or have lower IQs uh, scores and stuff tend to end up in prison more? Are those two unrelated things? And so that's a question that cannot be answered if we don't start looking, if we are not able to look at people, men, who identify as pedophiles but don't act on it, who restrain themselves, or even just pedophiles who do act on it but never get caught. We will never be able to answer those questions if we don't identify those people. So at some point, we need to be able to create a cultural milieu where people can feel comfortable coming forward and saying, I have these urges, I feel this way, or I've committed these acts and, you know, seeking help that was, it will actually help them and not punish them. Pedophiles are very likely to commit suicide once they've um, been arrested and people may rejoice at that thought, but I don't, I really don't. I think we've wasted a life. Someone that we could have helped have a good life. They they deserve better, in my view. And so, yes, I'm an extremely empathetic person. I know this about myself. I don't I don't min mince that. That's anyway. I am very empathetic, and I do think that every person deserves to have a good life. And I don't believe, especially because the level of control that most pedophiles have over their feelings, over their urges, is virtually none. 
They didn't choose to be this way. They would never choose to feel this way on purpose. Who would ever make that choice to have themselves ostracized by society on purpose? Very, very few people would. So it's a shame that we we do denigrate people who experience this to such extent that they feel like they're worthless and that we treat them like they're worthless. Um, and similarly, when we look at any types of prohibitions, any types of bans on things, what happens when you ban something and you prohibit it? It goes underground. People get sneakier about it. It still happens, but it happens way deeper beyond closed doors. And so the same thing happens with child sexual abuse. And this is, in my view, something that we have an environment we have uh, not intentionally at all, but created because now we have the internet and the dark web specifically. This is what this, this particular podcast was focused on was the dark web and online sexual child abuse. But because of the ongoing cultural milieu that this is, you know, it's, it's horrifying, it's terrible, you're a garbage human who deserves to die. All of those narratives have forced these people into a deep, deep, dark place where they create their own communities, where they get to reinforce their own feelings. They get to deepen their dissociation with reality of you are harming children by not ever having an avenue or access to something where they could actually have gotten help for what it is that they're experiencing. And so again, this just perpetuates more child abuse. It puts more children at risk of being abused because there's no support. There's no treatment. We don't know how to treat it yet. We kind of have a, we're getting a, an emerging sense of ways that we can deal with this proactively. But again, with such a lack of understanding of how pedophilia presents in non-violent, non-convicted individuals, we, it's, it's a very incomplete picture. It's very incomplete. So one of the things that stood out to me was in this particular podcast, which, by the way, I'm going to offer a content warning here. There's going to be a little bit of explicit discussion at this stage of child sexual abuse as I discuss a little bit about the details of this podcast. So they focus on this guy, Ben Faulkner, who was a, quote, producer and uh, uh, viewer of child sexual abuse materials, which is most frequently referred to as child pornography. But as they point out in this particular podcast, that is a skewed way of phrasing it because pornography implies that it is enjoyable. It views it from the abuser's perspective. So they they prefer to call it child sexual abuse material. So that's what I call it now too. <laughs> I'm getting on the, on the boat. Um, so he was a producer of this material and he ran several user sites, some of the biggest sites in the world on the dark web of child sexual abuse. And um, so the this podcast focuses on his life and his reality, his perceptions, all of this stuff. And so it was interesting because they talk about how he discloses that he had sought help from a psychologist a single time. 
he went to a psychologist and and eventually got around to, you know, he said he didn't want to hurt anybody. He had been um, abusing children prior to that, but he didn't say that. He said he didn't want to hurt anybody. Um, and eventually he said, I like children or I like kids or whatever. The psychologist, he said, got visibly very uncomfortable and asked him, like, 10-year-olds and Ben nodded his head yes. In his mind, he was thinking it was a fair bit younger to the age of 10 um, at the time, but he didn't correct the psychologist. And at the end of the session, the psychologist said to him, just figure it out or something like that, right? Like you're on your own. And so Ben took that very seriously. He took them very personally. And so he says, you know, he took it to me and I'm on my own and I have to deal with this. However, I'm going to deal with it. I don't have support here. And then there's also this conversation between the journalist and Ben's mother. And the journalist says, you know, Ben sort of described a situation where he, at one point when he was a teenager or a young teen, he was crying and his mother was trying to console him. And, and he said he fucked up. And she said, you know, okay, well, like, let's make it right. What happened? And he said, I can't tell you. He said uh, that, that he told her, I can't tell you because you'll hate me. And the mother responded to the journalist who was relaying this this conversation. She says, yeah, that, that does sound pretty accurate to what, what that conversation was like. Um, and he was not wrong. Like, or, you know, that he or she understood based on their previous conversations about people who uh, were sexual deviants that she would have presented the... Sorry, I had to kick Nina out. <laughs> She's too noisy today. His mom confirmed that she would have laid the groundwork to um, make him think that that's how she would feel. And so he didn't have anyone to turn to. Interestingly, a woman who was a relative of Ben's who had children, and it turned out that Ben had abused her children. Um, long story, again, listen to the podcast if you're if you, this piques <laughs> any interest of yours. Um, uh, she... She gave some uh, impact statements during Ben's sentencings because he was obviously arrested and went to prison. Um, and she also made a statement to the journalist. She said, you know, like, oh, well, he, he went to a psychologist one time and, and the psychologist brushed him off like, that's not trying to get help. That's not an effort, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you know, like, I agree that typically seeing one psychologist and having them dismiss you isn't much, like, putting much effort into it. I agree with that. But... I also can see it from his perspective that the amount of courage and vulnerability that it would have required of him to have made that confession, to have said those things to a psychologist, would have been immense. I mean, I honestly can't even imagine how hard it would have been for him to have said that. And so for the response to be discomfort, uh, evidently not being equipped at all to deal with this emotionally themselves and complete dismissal, not even to say, I'm not equipped to deal with this, but maybe we'll find someone who can, like to just completely dismiss him totally. I can kind of understand why he would never want to do that again. I can see why he would be like, well, that's it. Because why would you ever want to put yourself in that type of a vulnerable position to experience the same thing again, to experience that level of invalidation of your experience, right? With someone who is supposed to be a professional in the field of disorders. So yeah, I, I can see both sides of this. And so 
you know, again, looking at the, the this point with his mother, looking at the point with the psychologist, and I'm thinking there may have been some opportunities that were missed that could have helped to mitigate the harm that this guy caused. I mean, ultimately, he caused an immense amount of harm. And again, this journalist makes this distinction that Ben is not just a pedophile. He is also categorically, a, a, like in this person's opinion, a sociopath. And so you do have to be able to, in some ways, pull those two things apart because part of the thing with Ben was that he was driven by the power that he had over other people, other users, i.e. pedophiles online through the websites that he was running. And and so it was power and control on that side of things and not just with his pedophilic predilections. So, yeah, so I was thinking... If we were to get to a place where we could have comprehensive discussions and understanding about where pedophilia comes from, why it happens, or even just an understanding and empathetic perspective that some people just are pedophiles and that they just need help, they need to be seen and validated and supported in order to protect children that maybe we would be doing less investigation and investigative work in trying to catch them after they've you know done these horrifying things and mitigating some of the harm that comes to children because they are so isolated because they are so ostracized because you know they pointed out and this is not like it's completely sensible these people create online communities where they can turn to each other for support. And like I was said, you know, they end up reinforcing their own uh, skewed perceptions. But the point is that they're there to support each other. And so if you could flip that on its head and create a positive support system, like an AA style support system, where people could come who wanted to reform, who wanted to change. Um, who recognized that it was a problem. And, you know, this is contingent on the fact that there are certain certain classes of pedophiles where there are people who want to change and people who maybe don't. So there's obviously some other things that need to be kind of analyzed in that sense. But just because there probably are lots of pedophiles out there who, who really don't want to act on these things, but they just don't have any place to turn. And so they end up doing it anyway. So maybe we could mitigate some of that harm and maybe we could draw people out of the darkness and get them the help that they need. And again, bottom line being help protect more children from harm, ultimately not, you know, put them in harm's way by having these types of abuses be so sneaky and so silent and so... Um, beneath the radar. You know, we have these these ways of helping children now to protect themselves against abuse. You know, when I talked in previous episodes about ways that we can protect our children and make them informed and guide them towards, you know, not not letting people touch their body and giving them bodily autonomy and all these things and I think that those are important too, but that's a victimization mentality. That's like telling women not to wear short skirts or walk alone at night. 
those those types of strategies are effective to an extent, but you've got to get to the root of it too. You've got to be able to help the people who are going to attempt to perpetrate that violence and abuse towards them so that they shouldn't even need to apply those skills ever. So that people who have these disorders have, have help accessible to them. Because, okay, sorry, one of the last things I want to say here is in the States, sentencing for um, child molestation and, and crimes of that nature are much more harshly punished than they are here in Canada. So Ben Faulkner ultimately was sentenced uh, to a life sentence in prison, plus another 35-year sentence for a different conviction in the United States. So he's serving a life sentence in the U.S. Not everyone who serves, who is given sentences, uh, end up serving their entire sentence. So I think they said something like, 85 to 90% of convicted pedophiles re-enter the community after their sentencing. And this is a huge problem too. Punishment-based accountability and and punishment-based ways of dealing with these things are ineffective in preventing future crimes. So even looking at it from the perspective of Um, reintegrating people who have been already convicted of these crimes into the community, it's also still just as important that we understand how to treat them, how to help them. Because ultimately, if you continue to force them to suppress how they feel, it's only going to end badly for themselves and other people. They're, They're just going to end up causing harm more than likely in the end. And we know that suppressing something, especially something as innate and as human as a sexual drive is incredibly difficult and is only going to lead to bad things. And so one thing that I also meant to say that I want to clarify too is that, you know, I was talking about how the prison population in itself tends to lean more towards mental illness and uh, lower IQ. Two things about that. First of all, I hate IQs. I hate the idea of IQ scores. It's actually not a very good um, measure of of intelligence at all. So there's that. That's a different discussion. But also that I can understand that it probably is true that pedophiles tend to experience a higher level of mental illness because, again, when you look at what must be going through their heads when they know that these things are wrong, that their feelings are not acceptable socially, but they can't do anything about it, it would be like being caught between a rock and a hard place all the time. So this would probably cause them to experience extreme anxiety and depression and other types of disorders like that. But I don't think that this is something necessarily that they are destined to experience. I think it's just the again, the cultural milieu that exists that causes those kinds of mental illnesses to emerge based on the environment that they live in. And so I would be very curious, again, to see what research shows about people who are dealing with their pedophilic urges but not acting on them, Um, and what might happen if we were to shift cultural mindset to a little bit more of acceptance and empathy for them just being fucking human um, and being able to prioritize treatment and help versus demonization and burning them at the stake. So, yeah, one last thing that I want to tell you about is the, what is it called now? Um, Dunkelfeld Prevention Project. I believe that's the name of it, or maybe it's Prevention Project Dunkelfeld. Um, It's a German 
project, that research project that's been ongoing for quite some time. I remember learning about this years ago when I was in that same course. Um, and essentially it is geared towards prevention. And so it they, they try to reach out to people who self-identify as pedophiles but haven't been convicted necessarily. Um, so there is research and projects that are occurring where they're focusing more on on capturing more of those people who aren't represented in the traditional research um, and then also giving them the opportunity to participate in other types of research and behavioral therapies and other interventions that try to help curb the behaviors and the um, the disorder itself. So I just wanted to highlight that there are things happening and you can look that up online. Um, I will leave a link actually even to one of the research papers that um, I found about it. But yeah, so there is stuff happening, but this is one very small research study where we could be using tons of these studies to, again, generate a, more of an understanding, get a better sense of what treatment can look like, and really move forward with this disorder so that we can ultimately, at the end of the day, protect more children. Okay, that's all I can say on this for now. I hope that I have made my point. <laughs> that maybe some of this makes sense to you and that maybe this has given you a little bit of a firmer grasp on the situation and maybe spurred you to do some of your own research, to start looking into this stuff, asking questions, trying to understand it better. Um, because I do agree with the journalists on the CBC that we need to commit to a reckoning on what pedophilia is and how we treat people who experience pedophilia. I really, really do. And I felt this way for a long time. Okay. Whew. Again, we're taking some deep breaths. <sighs> Thank you, as always, for being here with me. I am super extra grateful if you made it through this whole episode. I would love to hear your thoughts on this to tell me how you feel when you went into the episode, how you feel coming out of it, what's going through your head right now. What are you feeling about this? Let's talk about that. Let's start a conversation about that. And maybe we can get somewhere. Okay. Thanks again. You can reach me through any of the means that I will have in the show notes. If you liked this episode, even if you didn't like it, please offer a rating and a review. I would love to hear from you in either that sense or um, in through, through any of my the means of reaching me, whatever works for you. But I would love a rating and a review because it would help the podcast. <laughs> and um, that's all I've got to say. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I will see you in the next one.